0: Chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 10, and chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. Which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and as you are seated, uh, I'll introduce myself. I'm Brant. My name's Brant. I'm one of the elders and pastors here at Christ City Church. Uh, If you don't know me, that's who I am. Uh, I know most of you. If you haven't yet met me, I'd love to meet you. Um, Or look for one of the other elders, Jonathan, or... uh uh, uh, Fred is here as well this morning. You can introduce yourself to them. Um, we love you. Welcome. We're glad to have you. And we're excited to share the word of God with you this morning. But before we start, um, because we believe in this God who infuses all that we do with success and makes it work and makes it possible. We want to ask him, uh, together with you to help us this morning to hear from his words. Would you pray with me? Heavenly father, uh, we come before you and we come small, um, Broken, needy people, Father, Uh, but we come with the confidence that that you, through your Son, have met our need with your love and your mercy and grace. Father, I just ask that you would work powerfully by your Holy Spirit to to bring to life your word in our hearts, that it would cause fruitfulness in our hearts, that we be changed this morning as we see your word to become more like Jesus. We ask this in, in his precious name. Amen. So today we're in our second message in the book of Proverbs. We're in our summer series, uh, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Living. And last week we covered a little bit of what it means, uh, what what wisdom is. What what is wisdom? We looked at the what, if you will. And then this week we're going to look at the how. How do we become wise? But before we get going, I wanted to just summarize a little bit for you of what we talked about last week. What is wisdom? Maybe you were, weren't here or maybe you have forgotten because the week's gone by and you're like me and your memories, you know, don't always grasp and, or hold on to everything. That's fine. I'm the same way. Um, let's do a little refresher here. What is wisdom? Well, last week we defined it as, I have a slide for this, living rightly in God's created world. And then we added to that definition and we, we showed that it has to be done in, in a whole way. With all of our thinking, with all of our doing, and with all of our loving as we live this wisdom. Don't just think it. We don't just know it. We live it. And how that gets worked out, I tried to show you from the scriptures, is through this righteous living in God's world. This righteous living that has to do with with God, who is love, uh, causing me to live in love towards my neighbor's. So I learned to shrewdly figure out how to live to my disadvantage and to the advantage of others in those uh, communities around me at Christ City Church and here in Vancouver. How can we live wisely in love for those around us? And to give you a picture of what this looks like, I didn't do this last week, but I I thought maybe we could just give a little summary of what the wise person looks like. And that little summary is going to be here for you this morning. Um, I'll just read it for you. I don't think I have a slide for it, but the, the Proverbs scholar Bruce Waltke he summarizes the wise man this way. He says this: He says, instead of being wise in his own opinion, the wise is teachable, seeking the knowledge the gullible need and storing it up. He listens to instruction and counsel, accepts commands and even loves reproof. A wise person walks with the wise and even increases in his wisdom, having found knowledge. The wise man, the wise person, he spreads it and becomes a fountain of life to his community. They bring joy to their parents, are themselves protected, and they bring healing to others. Isn't that beautiful? Bring healing to others, becoming a fountain of life in their community. This is the wisdom we're talking about, living rightly in God's world in this way, extending his love and his goodness to those around us and having the skill to know how to do that in all the tricky areas sounds pretty good. But here's a question. Okay, great. But how do we become that person? Right? How how do I become wise? If that's what it is, how do I get there? Well, it begins with something called the fear of the Lord. Look at Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, and also chapter nine, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy one is inside. So the fear of the Lord then is this foundation piece. It's, it's the beginning, the foundation to all true wisdom, uh, author and scholar, Bruce Walke again, I'll quote him. Um, he said that wisdom is, or the fear of the Lord is like this. He said what the alphabet is to reading, what notes are to reading music, and numerals to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge of Proverbs. It's foundational. There's an implication here. The Bible's claim this morning for you is that, is that if you do not fear the Lord, you are not wise. The Bible's claim for you this morning is that if you do not learn to fear the Lord, you won't become wise. The fear of the Lord is essential. It's foundational. I don't think we want to let that go past us. We need to know that this morning. So then what is it? Right? We need to ask that question next. If that's the case, then let's dive in and let's try to understand what is then this fear of the Lord? Is it just simply being afraid of God? And that's one way to read this, right? The fear of the Lord is just to be literally afraid of God. Well, that's not what we're talking about. It's much more than that. Uh, the fear of the Lord, if we're going to give it a quick little summary at the beginning here, um, is this. It's, it's true knowledge of God and true lo- knowledge of, of who I am bound together and knit together in relationship with God. So true knowledge of God, true knowledge of, of me brought together in relationship with God. And if that's, not, if that's still not very clear to you, that's okay because that's actually going to be our outline this morning. We're going to change the order a little bit. We're going to, we're going to look at the knowledge of self, the knowledge of of God and relationship with God. And we're going to use those three things to try to triangulate again, this idea of the fear of the Lord to understand more fully what it means for us. So let's jump in together. Let's look at our first point, knowledge of self, knowledge of self. So in order to be wise, we must fear the Lord, but in order to fear the Lord, we need to know ourselves because this is what happens. If I don't fear God, I tend to think very highly of me. And I tend to think very little of God. I tend not to know him at all, right? So I I don't know myself correctly. I don't know him and and I can't become wise. So we need to know ourselves. So let me ask you a question. How well do we know ourselves as human beings this morning? How well do you know yourselves here in this room? You know, I, I don't think that we know ourselves very well. I'm going to suggest that to you this morning. I don't think we know ourselves very well. And there's a reason for that. The reason is that our pride clouds our assessment of ourselves. Our pride clouds our assessment of ourselves. I mean, are you aware that there are people in this world, maybe even in this room that have say an inflated view of themselves, right? Maybe you're aware that, that some of those people are sitting next to you. But be careful because they're also aware that you're sitting next to them, right? Or it's possible, I suppose, that you've never met a 17-year-old male. It's possible that you've never met a high school graduate or a university graduate or, uh, for that matter, a seminary graduate, right? You know, I've met proud people and I am one. You know, by God's grace, I'm growing through his gospel, by his grace, through his word, I'm growing to become more humble, but I'm amazed, and maybe you are too, by my own ability to see myself inaccurately. And here's the thing, you have an incredible ability to see yourself inaccurately too. So we can have like a family meeting moment here this morning and just get real, real, you know, pull the veil back on our hearts. Isn't it true that we think really really, really highly of ourselves. Isn't that true? I think we feel it all the time. I think we feel it when we look at, you know, a group photo. When you when you see a group photo, whose eyes do you look to? If you're in that photo, you look at yourself first, right? If you're like me anyway. So, you know, if, if I'm the only one, <laughs> that's really embarrassing. <laughs> I'm really counting on you guys feeling the same way. <clears throat> or we feel it too... Uh, in relationships, when we get into conflict with somebody and the emotions get in the way and we just can't back down. We can't back down. I can't admit who I really am in that argument. And I try to justify myself. I think, I think we do this. I think we do this. That's what happens to me. I I think it's what happens to you. We think highly of ourselves. You know, it's really funny though, the way that this happens sometimes, isn't it? Right? Because some of us, think that we're better at sports than we are. And some of us think that our kids are better at sports than they are. Right. Or maybe some of your friends, parents thought their kids growing up and playing sports with you thought that their kids were better than they are or whatever. You know, some people in the gym, uh, they take all the 45s off and load up the, and load off the the barbell because they think that they're stronger than they are. Right. And then it's that embarrassing walk of shame. When you like take two or three 45s off and put them back on the, on the shelf, on the rack. Right. You know some of us think that we're better looking than we are or more lovable than we are or more righteous than we are and I think at least all of us probably think that we're deserving of more good than we actually are Our pride prevents us from seeing ourselves as we are and that makes us foolish I think we default as human beings to an inflated view of who we are That's our default And you know what like, what I'm saying it's not controversial this isn't a controversial thing. There have been wise men throughout history who've noticed this. Even secular wise people who don't know the Bible, who don't love Jesus, have seen this. Look at, look at what Socrates said. He said, the only true wisdom is in knowing that you know nothing. <laughs> or look at Confucius who said, real knowledge is to know the extent of one's own ignorance. Or even the Buddha said, a fool who recognizes his own ignorance is thereby, in fact, a wise man. And most poetically, because we love King James English, Shakespeare: "The fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool." You know, these wise men—they they got off on a start a little bit, right? They realized that my knowledge of self is pretty broken. I don't know that much about me. But all that they were even, in all of their wisdom, able to recognize is that they were in the dark. Right? To be wise, you need to know—you need to know more than the, you're in the dark. You need more than that knowing wise, knowing that you don't see things clearly, it's not going to help you. And I think this is where our finitude, our smallness, our lack of perspective of ourselves, it actually turns sinful. Look at Look again at Proverbs 1 verse 7. Look at it carefully with me. We saw there, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But look at that second line. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You know, the Bible is really binary. We talked about this last week. In the the world of the Proverbs, what we're talking about here, um, there's only two categories. There is the the one who fears God, who is wise and who is righteous. And there is one who does not fear God, who is a fool and who is wicked. The Bible is very binary in its discussion here. And it says here about us, I think, then on our own, apart from Christ, that, that we're fools that we're the ones that despise wisdom and instruction. The Bible's teaching here is showing us that it's not just that we can't see, it's that in our pride, we refuse the one who created all things and we refuse to learn from him. We refuse to measure the moral good of our lives compared to his holiness and his perfection. We refuse to acknowledge the limits of our understanding and we refuse to be instructed by the one who could teach us something. We despise wisdom. It's not neutral. It's not neutral. Now to illustrate this, I think we're sort of like those poor Thai boys in the soccer team in the cave. I've used this illustration before, but we're going to go a different direction. Uh, they're in the cave, you know, two kilometers deep underground and it's full of water. And they're on this beach in the dark, complete and bitter darkness. It's so dark that they don't even know what it is that they're stumbling over. Well, they're stumbling. They'd fall over something and maybe they could go back and try to feel what it was, but they can't tell if it's a rock or some hardened clay. They don't know what it was that caused them to trip. And imagine this, imagine that when the divers then came and they popped out, out of, out of the water and shone their lights on those boys, that they said that they were, imagine that they were offended by those lights, offended by them because that light said something about their own imaginary ones. It showed that their their own little imaginary lights weren't actually that light at all, that they were just dark. And they were offended by the divers and said, you know what? We don't actually even like you very much. We'd rather not see your light. If you don't mind, could you turn that thing off and could you go back where you came from? Look at Proverbs chapter four, verse 19. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. On our own, we don't know who we are. We have a problem. On our own, we don't know how to live our lives, how to settle in a direction and go there, which desires to follow that will lead to our flourishing, which desires to follow that will lead to our destruction, we don't know. On our own, we're in the dark. So if on our own, we're in the dark, if on our own, we're in the dark, then how do we get a better view of ourselves? How can we come out of that and into the light? Should we take the Enneagram? Any, any, any Enneagram fans in the room? Anybody? You can put up your hands. Okay. Myers-Briggs? Yeah, Myers-Briggs. Okay, well, all you ENFPs, meet me in the back afterwards. We'll have a little talk. You know, what will help us? Like, what's going to work here to help us get an angle on ourselves? No, those things won't help. There's only one way. For true knowledge of self, we need, we must turn to our next point, the true knowledge of God. Because, as John Calvin said almost 500 years ago now, he said this, he said, Nearly all wisdom we possess... That is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. You know, the fear of the Lord and true wisdom is what happens when our imperfection and our finiteness bump up against God's infiniteness and his perfections. And as a result, we're left gasping for breath. As we see a glimpse of who we really are compared to his glory. C.S. Lewis says, In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. But here's the thing. If we start to see God as who he is, the result is that we're flattened in our pride. We're brought low as we see us for who we are in contrast with who he really is. And we tremble before him. Have you seen God like this in his word? It's my question for you this morning. Have you seen God like this? Have you begun to contend with what the Bible teaches about who God is? The scriptures speak about God in a way that's breathtaking. I promise you that your view of God, no matter how elevated your theology is, is not a big enough view of God. And your view of yourself isn't accurate either. God's mightier than you can comprehend. He's bigger than you know. He's more loving and just and good than you currently have categories for. He's better in all these ways. Just look at a few passages of scripture with me to see some of this. It's a tiny glimpse of what the scriptures teach about God, but just a little bit. Look at his character and his righteousness. Psalm 89 verse 14 declares righteousness and justice are the very foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Or look at Deuteronomy 32 verse four. The rock, his work is perfect. It's a perfect God for all his ways are justice a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And the thing is this God who is all those things, he's also in control of everything. Look at his control in Proverbs 16 verse nine, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps or Psalm 33 verses 10 to 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. When you look at global unrest, don't worry God's still the one who's in control. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. His plans will succeed. Psalm 115 verse 3. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Or look at Isaiah 43 verse 13. This is God speaking to us. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Christy, the Bible claims that God is God and that you aren't. The Bible claims that he's in control and that through it all, he's good. Perfect in his love. Look at Psalm 36, verses 7 to 9. How precious is your steadfast love, O oh God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. And in your light do we see light. So, how do you respond to this, God? If, if he were to appear before you right now, what would you do? What would happen when you saw the contrast between your imperfections and sin and his holiness and his glory? You know, I, I can show you right now what people in scripture did. Let's look at this. Abraham, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Manoah, in the book of Judges. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. Or Isaiah. When he sees God, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Or look look at Ezekiel, as he writes in a different sort of genre. He's giving an account. He says, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so is the appearance of the brightness all around. Such is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Or look at Gideon. And then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace to you do not fear you shall not die you know these and many others came into contact with god they saw god and they got a little glimpse of who they really were and and they put two and two together okay that's that's god and and this is me and they were terrified they were terrified before him as they saw who they really were in the light of his glory You know, Calvin says this, he said, as long as we do not look beyond the earth, being quite content with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue, and understanding, we could add, we flatter ourselves most sweetly, and we fancy ourselves all but demigods. Suppose we but once begin to raise our thoughts to God and to ponder his nature, and how completely perfect are his righteousness and his wisdom and his power, the straightage to which we must be shaped then what masquerading earlier as righteousness was pleasing in us will soon grow filthy in its consummate wickedness. What wonderfully impressed us under the name of wisdom will stink in its very foolishness. What wore the face of power will prove itself the most miserable weakness. That is what in us seems perfection itself corresponds ill to the purity of God. Have you seen this, God? And we should ask, then is trembling and fear and terror the only right way to respond to him? Is that the fear of the Lord? Is being afraid of him literally and viscerally the fear of the Lord that we're talking about here? Well, I want to say to you this morning that it certainly starts there, but it doesn't end there. It starts there, but it can't end there because there's one ingredient that we've left out here. And that's relationship. Because the fear of the Lord includes right knowledge of self, yes, right knowledge of God, but it responds to that knowledge by receiving God's offer of grace with thanksgiving and with humility and with love. And when that happens, our fear changes from fear to adoration and to obedience and to worship as we love him. Look with me at our next point, relationship with God. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is inside. I just want to say a quick word here about the way that the Proverbs work. Cause I think that we need to talk about this. We've passed over a bunch of problems already, but you notice how there's like a first line and a second line here. There's part one, part B that, that well, actually a lot of the Proverbs function that way. It's a contrast between this statement and that statement. What We need to learn from that is as we read the Proverbs, we need to realize that Hebrew poetry does this funny thing whereby when it's together, when those two lines are stated, they actually work together. So the second line gives more meaning to the first and the first line gives more meaning to the second. They work together. Does that make sense? So here when we say in verse 9 sorry, chapter nine, verse 10, and the knowledge of the Holy one is insight that actually has to do with fearing the Lord and the beginning of wisdom. They're related. They're talking about the same thing. They're filling it out in the second line and look there. Then that's really important because then we see that knowledge of the Holy one is important to fearing the Lord. it's important to this beginning of wisdom and knowledge here. We need to realize isn't just knowledge. Like you'd learn in a mathematics textbook. It's not knowledge. Like, Hey, I'm going to learn something by opening a book and, and learn about some physics or something. That's not what this knowledge is. This is knowledge. That's a personal and a relationship knowledge in Hebrew. It's the knowledge that two friends have when they've lived together for years and years, and they've gone through suffering and joy and hardship together. And they know one another. It's the knowledge that a married couple would have as they've matured in their relationship and grown. They know one another. This knowledge of the Holy One, then, is a knowledge that's related to this wisdom, related to fear of the Lord, that trusts the Holy One, that loves the Holy One that gladly obeys the Holy one. And that's why the fear of the Lord is also held in this, this tension throughout the Bible, not just with the fear of the Lord, but, but with its counterpoint, which is the love of the Lord. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 to see the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord together. And now Israel, what does the Lord, your God require of you, but to fear the Lord, your God. Okay. But there's more to walk in all his ways, to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now we're getting somewhere. When true knowledge of self and, and true knowledge of God's met with his humble love and submission and relationship, then that's fear of the Lord in this biblical sense. It's fear as an adoring son and daughter of God. It's fear not for fear's sake, but fear that leads you to worship and to rejoice that this God's power and his infiniteness are for me. And I rejoice and am comforted by it. Look at Psalm 16 verses 9 to 11 to see the way the psalmist rejoices in this relationship and fear of God. It says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption you make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore so now i think we're ready for a fuller definition what is the fear of the lord well i'm going to give you charles bridge's quotation i think he says it well he says the fear of the lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of god bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law Isn't that beautiful The fear of the Lord is that affectionate, it's loving reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. True knowledge of self plus true knowledge of God. And it leads to me humbling myself before him. But then as I'm responding to his grace and his love towards me, I come before him in worship as I'm brought into relationship with him. That's the fear of the Lord. So we could ask this morning though, why does it matter? right? You know, it's related to wisdom. Sure. But, but what's the big deal here? I I just want to share from my own heart at this point in the message, some of the ways that the fear of the Lord has changed my life. So just bear with me for a second. I, I want to share this with you. The fear of the Lord is fruitful because when I fear him in my own life, I start to fear the opinions of others less. I think about those around me and earning their praise and their admiration. I think about it a lot less as I fear God and stand before him, loved and accepted and brought into relationship with him. When I fear him, he makes me confident in the direction of my life because I don't just have like all these gazillions of competing voices telling me where to go and what to do. I have God and his word standing head and shoulders above the rest and I fear him and I trust him and I want to learn how to obey him and I go forward in my life with confidence You know, when I fear Him, I'm humbled by my sin. When I fear the Lord, and as I learn about His love for me, I'm sanctified. God helps to expose my sin and to cause me to turn from it, to become more like Jesus. For example, (laughs) there's a time in my life not too long ago when I didn't think I was a proud person, and I, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have said to you, "Hey, look, I'm really humble." Because I knew that you shouldn't do that, right? Like, that seems pretty intuitive. You know, if you want people to, you know, realize your humility, don't tell them that you're humble. You know, you've got to just let them realize it. And, and uh, by, God's, by God's grace, by God's grace, he didn't leave me there. I'll just say that, right? He showed me my pride. He showed me my pride through his Holy Spirit, through the working of the church, uh, through his word. And I started to be more grieved over that pride in my life than I've been grieved over any other sin to date in my life. And that's weird because on the face of it, I think that pride looks less serious than some of the other sins that I've struggled with. And the reason that I was grieved by it was because I was learning to fear God. Because I was learning who I am. I was learning who he is. And my sin was exposed before him. And as he held me close in relationship and love, I was humbled by it. It was changing me. The Fear of the Lord does even more than this, though. Because when we fear him, our anxieties decrease. When I fear God, I fear other things less. So more confessions for this morning. This is really embarrassing. So last week, Monday, my buddy from the East Coast sends me an article about the big one. And I start doing some thinking Monday morning on my day off. And I'm like, I live in a four-story walk-up made of wood and the earthquake's going to come, and we're all going to die. And I just was filled with anxiety. I started to tremble, and I was, I was worried. I was a little bit scared. I got all this anxiety happening all over the place. But the fear of the Lord helped me, because it reminded me that, that God's God that I'm not. Helped me to remember that he's in control of all things, and he's good, and I can trust him. The fear of the Lord brought me to the words of Jesus in Matthew six, when he said, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life. And he reminded me that God is in the heavens and he's in control and I can trust him. And it doesn't mean that I don't make plans to try to care for my family. It's not what it means at all, but it means that as I do so I don't do as I don't do those things as someone that's enslaved to a fear of an earthquake. I do it as someone who's trying to be wise and use my resources to the glory of God, even as I trust him and fear him so much more than I fear the earthquake that might come. So do you fear the Lord? This is profoundly a heart issue this morning. The key to wisdom is not Google. It's humbly rending your heart, being rent before God as you see him for for who he is. That's the key to wisdom. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says it this way, and it's beautiful. Fred and I have been talking a lot about this verse this last year. We're praying it for all of you. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Are you easily broken? Are you easily led to repentance as you encounter the God of the Bible? God's given us his word so we can know him as he is. Have you taken seriously your opportunity to seek him out? Have you prayed that as you read, he would expose your hearts before him? That he'd render you naked and exposed, laid bare. That he wouldn't leave you there. That he'd draw you from that place into his love and in his mercy and his grace. Do you read the Bible like that? He's greater than you can possibly imagine. This God's wonderful. And the best thing that you can happen today, this week, this year, for the rest of your life is to know more and more who he is and to respond humbly to him and to worship.